We're going to begin with an equation. I'm going to appeal to all the math people, both of you. Uh, <laughs> as we start out this evening, I'll give you an equation. It goes like this. Knowledge plus zeal equals a vibrant Christian life. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, knowledge plus zeal equals a, a vibrant Christian life. Now, if you just take the word apathy, uh, A means not, pathos means passionate, not passionate, without passion. A life without any passion, you're kind of going through the motions. If you've ever seen someone, and this is not to, uh, um, this almost, uh, anyway, if somebody's really trying to work on depression and they start taking medications to try to figure it out, sometimes what you'll see them look like is it takes their personality and flattens it. And they just kind of walk through the motions and they don't seem to have any kind of vibrant life to them. This can be kind of like a Christian walk sometimes if we're a group of people who we've got all the, the, the knowledge we want and the doctrine down right, but it just doesn't have any passion um, and, and so we're going to go more toward the antonym rather than the synonym here and contrast it with zeal. And that's what we're talking about but, but tonight. But I, I would liken this if you're, if you're into anatomy like head plus heart. It's like uh, you know this as well as I do, the Church of Christ history. We are a rational, logical movement of people. We really appeal to the head. We want to be able to argue and make sure we got the doctrine right. And our criticism we've received over the years is sometimes we lack a passion. And we see other people who have passion that we don't think have the knowledge right. And both of these are illustrated in Romans. I'm going to show you this in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10 first. Romans chapter 10 first. I did put that down right. Did I not put that on there? Are you sure? about? Okay, so everybody turn to Romans chapter 10 for just a second. Well, I meant to, and Paul should have picked up on it. Romans chapter 10. And the fact is, both of these are demonstrated by the Roman church. And here's the first. Well, yeah, it was there. What are you talking about? Oh. Job wanted. It's Valley View Church. Of, no, no. no. Brothers, my, uh, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer for them. I think I, put, I must have put that in the NIV. Uh, for God is for the Israelites that they may be saved. For I can testify about them. They are zealous for God. I can testify the Jews that I've been around have an extreme enthusiasm and they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. They've got a lot of enthusiasm. Nobody questions their zeal, but it's not based on true knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness of God and try or sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So they're headed in the wrong direction, but they're very happy about it, right? They're headed in the wrong direction, but they're thrilled. All right, so, but that's not the only thing represented in Romans. Back up to Romans chapter 8. I hope I've got that on the screen here too. Yeah, I mean 12. I said 8, didn't I? I meant 12. Read my mind, Paul. Read my mind. Hmm, right? Okay. Love must be sincere. That was read a moment ago. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, uh, uh, honor one another above each other. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. Serve the Lord. 
Guys, it's great to have this knowledge. And I know you in Rome, you, you're following the truth, but you guys are getting to where you've lacked spiritual fervor. I don't want just head knowledge. I don't want you just to be right. I want you to be enthusiastic and zealous about the truth. This is the balance we're looking for. Romans 10, they have zeal but not knowledge. Romans chapter 12, they have knowledge but lack zeal. I'd love to see us. And the striving for us, according to Paul, is us to have both. I've got to thinking about why this would be a problem for us. Why would we, who know the truth of the gospel, a gospel which by its very meaning of the word means great news, why we would lack zeal, that passion. Why doesn't knowledge of this gospel that we know about what God has done for us, why doesn't that just pour out of us with enthusiasm and zeal in the world in which we live? Think about what the gospel is. This next slide shows, it shows that we have a a living God who loves us and he lives with us and he provides us with forgiveness of our sins that should have doomed us and in fact did doom us until God sweeps in and rescues us by a Savior giving up his blood for us. We gathered around the table every Sunday because of that. He promises he'll be with us always, even to the end of the age, living every moment, sharing life with us. He's gracious, and he leads us into eternal life with him. And eternal life doesn't begin when you die. For all of us here, eternal life has already started. Don't wait. It's already started. It's a quality of life of walking with God. There is a heaven, and your citizenship is there. It's a sure deal. And there is a hell, and you won't go there. And God has sent his son to make sure that we are forever in heaven, never in hell. That's good news. And I'm awful ho-hum about it sometimes. I'm awful, and I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. Sometimes I I, I go into Scripture where this story is laid out over a prolonged period of time, this brilliant master stroke of God where he unveils it ever so slowly. He reveals the problem and the history of the problem getting worse and worse, and then the mighty rescue in the Gospels, and then the living out of the joy of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in us and equipping us to be ready for eternity. And I yawn, I yawn when I read it. I love to tell the story. No, not really. It's an old story. It's old news. It's been a problem really a long time. Familiarity with dynamite leads to a lot of trouble. I'm sure you know that. But handling the holy, handling the holy over time, the priests and Levites, (laughs) and even God's people, They'll sit and listen to the story, but it doesn't affect their life. The Hebrew writer wonders this. How can you taste the Holy Spirit and experience all the goodness of the new covenant and then walk away and then turn away from it and say, I'd rather go to my old life instead? How is that? Listen to this description. Ran across this week of a guy who 
when he used to read Scripture, describing someone. When, when he reads, the one afflicted with apathy yawns a lot and readily drifts off into sleep. He rubs his eyes and he stretches his arms and he turns his eyes away from the book. He stares at the wall and again he goes back to reading for a while, leafing through the pages, looks curiously for the end of the story. Later he closes the book and puts it under his bed and falls asleep and he's handling the holy. That story that gives you meaning and purpose in an entire future, and we read it like, well, i got to go read it to check off my read through the Bible in a year. Apathy. We, church, know some awesome truths. But we don't care all that much sometimes. And it might not be on your mind at all tomorrow when you're making decisions for your life. It may not have any bearing whatsoever. The idea, the idea that in prayer you are invited by the Lord of the universe to have an absolute audience with Him and talk about whatever's on your mind and know that whatever's on your mind you shared with Him will be taken into consideration when He chooses to unveil the future in your life and to think that that's what I've been given and I can't make myself pray. That's the most absurd thing, isn't it? We can't make ourselves stop from our petty little lives and talk to the creator of the universe. What is wrong with us? Or is it just me? (coughs) And if we saw what really happens in worship according to Hebrews chapter 12, (coughs) as one author put it, we would wear crash helmets and we would be exhausted when we're done to know what's happening in this assembly as we gather here, invited into God's presence to draw near. And yet, we are ever so casual. I have an idea why this is so. I thought about this all week thinking, why am I like this sometimes? Why is that? And it was really illustrated last Sunday. And I don't mean, I, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to hear people say, you really got on to us tonight, just like last Sunday. You really got on to us tonight. You really stepped on our toes. I'm not interested in your toes. I'm aiming a little higher than that. But here's the reason. I think we're so busy making sure we're saved at the end that we're no paying no attention to the kind of life he wants to give us right now. And as long as I'm saved, I don't give a flip about all the rest of it. And the reason why I think that happens um, is any time we talk about prayer and fasting or worship, I think, I think it comes across as work righteousness. I think when I preach this, it sounds like it. And can I tell you, I preach about very little of that. Uh, and I think because uh, I, I rely on the Lord's Supper to take care of some of this, uh, uh, the things that we do in response to what God's already done, those things you do are not to pay off what God's done already. This is not a payoff. 
You don't have to, to do a number of these things and you've paid off the rest. Jesus paid this much and you pay the rest with your behavior. That's what I feel like, I, I think, the way people are hearing me. Because they'll walk out and say, well, I just don't know if I, I do enough. And it causes, to, I'm, not, I'm not questioning your salvation. I'm, not, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just giving you ways for you to nurture an amazing walk with God in your life right now. I'm not, I, I, you're saved, you're fine for the eternal salvation. And I feel bad about this because I think people uh, accuse me like a lot of works righteousness. I get that every once in a while, and I, I comfort myself because Paul was accused of that a lot. So I think I'm in league with Paul here, right? But some people felt guilty last week when I brought up these spiritual disciplines, and I was making them question, am I saved or not? And I just want to scream. And here's what I mean. Can we talk about these things as enriching your walk with God without undermining your salvation? I, I'm, not, I'm not wanting you to wonder, am I saved or not? I'm wanting to heighten your spiritual awareness of what could be even more wonderful if we would learn how to put this into play in our lives right now. I, I'm not telling you to fast so that you'll get to heaven. I'm, I'm telling you we should try fasting to nurture this close walk with God that would make this life so much more vibrant and real and satisfying to you and make you treasure and pleasure God. Not to make you wonder, well, do I need to do that to be saved? No. No. It's not about your spiritual existence. It's about your spiritual maturity. Do you care about that enough? Is your maturity as important to you as the status at the end? Or when you find out you've been saved, does the meantime matter anymore? As long as the end time is secure, the meantime don't matter anymore. That's what it feels like to me sometimes when we talk about this. I'm talking about having a walk with God that is so incredibly pleasurable to you and that you draw close to him and he is like you feel him all the time and you think about him all the time and you want to please him all the time and it makes your life better and it makes your life joyful and it makes your life deeper. It's not about whether your salvation is secured or not. It is secured. The question is, do you have that vibrancy that attracts other people and deepens yourself? struggle the Hebrews writer had. He wanted to move on from the elementary truths. Have you ever wondered why? I, I've spent enough time talking about baptism. There are some people that would love to preach me to preach baptism every Sunday morning. And the reason is they've mastered that. And if you'll just preach about what I've mastered, I'll feel good all week long, even though I've not mastered anything since then. The Hebrews writer says, I want to go beyond that. Let's get to the meat. Let's start growing, showing signs of life. So that when in the early service, we have a lady come forward about a month ago, and she said, I was saved, baptized this year, told me the year, several years ago, and I haven't grown since. I hope that bothers you. Is she saved? Yes. But God wants more for her. And God wants more from her 
for the world. I want to see growth. I'll see you pursuing something deeper and being excited and passionate about your faith. So when I answer, no, no, no. Fasting or praying or scripture reading every day, even worship is not a salvation issue. They say, oh good, so I don't have to mess with it then. And I shake my head and I want to drown them in the baptistry, right? Might as well. I mean, that's where life began and basically stops. God has treasures. He has treasures available to us to enjoy in this life, and it will make you shine and vibrant. I don't just want to love my wife. I want to adore her. And I want it to show up in how I talk about her and how I treat her. And sometimes I'm awful legalistic. Yeah, I'm right here. I ain't going anywhere, dear. And for some reason, that doesn't bring her just a whole lot of joy. I can think of two reasons why you should care. And here's number one. It will enrich this life and enable you to know and live with joy and peace and deep inner strength. And I know Christians who get too disturbed too quickly. I know Christians who are too offended too fast. I know they're thrown off kilter way too easily. You are disoriented way too fast, and it's just too easy to get you off kilter and disturbed and distorted and all these things and to shake your life and to rattle your life. And by this time in your life, after 20 years of Christian experience, it should take way more than that to shake you. It should. It should take way more than that. And there's nothing in this life right now, with all the bad news going around everywhere, there's nothing more important for God's cause than God's people to be calm and joyful in the midst of a crazy world. It's not enough just to go to church every Sunday. They need to see us on Tuesday having a radiance and a joy and a peace that's not being shaken by every newscast from CNN. It doesn't have to do that. And God wants that. He wants that for us. And he's provided the tools for it. And we just go, I'm saved and that's all it takes. I feel like the older brother. The young brother comes back, the prodigal comes back, the dad, the dad runs out to him, he's all excited. And the older brother's outside going, I'm the one been enduring you all my life and I've never been anything to upset you. Yeah, but you have no joy whatsoever in your life at all. There is no family love, there is no closeness, there's no hugging and loving from the father to the older son. He's just doing his duty. And I think in Churches of Christ sometimes we are so busy doing duty that we're not having enthusiasm and joy and love that radiates to the world what God looks like. And I I, want to see us do that. That's one. Number two, this vibrancy that you can get with these things God gives us is what's going to attract the lost to us. They're not going to come to us because we're right. Isn't that sad? They're not going to come and be attracted to us because we're right on all the doctrines. They're going to come to us because our lives show forth 
this radiance of being transformed into the image of Jesus more and more and more. And they're going to say, I want that, and I can't find that anywhere else. I think this explains, and this is not on the screen, I know it, but I want you to turn to it if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, one of the zaniest passages, and I think, I, I think this explains it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is comparing, is talking about himself as a worker in the kingdom of God, along with Apollos and Peter and the others. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone can lay a foundation, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood or hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest. The day of Jesus, the judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What in the world does that mean? Here's what it means, I think. I'm building on a foundation. I'm doing quality work with people to try to add them to the kingdom and build the kingdom through people that I work with. And the quality of my work will be shown on Judgment Day when the judgment comes and it will show who did I work well with and who did I not do so well with. Now, Peter sa Paul says, we'll be saved. Those of us working, we're going to be saved, but only just by the skin of our teeth because our work was not quality. Here's what he's arguing. The vibrancy of my Christian life will determine who did I draw to the kingdom and who did I work with with quality? Who did I show the real nature of the kingdom and make true disciples? I will be judged partly by the quality of the disciples I produce in my life. I'm not just interested in me getting to heaven. I'm interested in taking other people with me. And I want to make sure that I attract and draw and mature people. Here's the thing. My job is not just to get to heaven. It's to take as many people with me as I can. And I care about the quality I'm trying to produce in other people. And if I'm just, I'm just satisfied with lackadaisical work, I promise you, if you are just barely able to get to your salvation, it's quite likely your kids who see that will themselves get there. They're going to be some of them that get burned away. I'm not interested in just getting me to heaven. I want to live in a vibrant way so that my two kids get to heaven, my grandkids get to heaven, and the people I know the most clearly who know me the best, they want to get there too. That vibrancy, it's not enough just to know the facts. Have some passion, have some zeal, have some life, have some vibrancy. They will not come to you. It's all head knowledge and it doesn't touch the heart at all. Because <clears throat> here's my guess. Most of us, if we just kind of 
Well, Sunday morning, I need to be there. Sunday night, that's a variable. Wednesday night, that's not commanded. So we're just kind of going through. Just kinda... If you do that, your kids will do less than that. If there's no passion there and you just do enough, you just do the minimum, I promise you, your kids will come along and they'll do a little less than the minimum. Their kids will come along, they'll do a little less than the minimum. And suddenly, within a generation or two, there ain't nobody doing nothing for God. There's got to be some vibrancy, some enthusiasm. The preaching mostly that's done at Valley View by me, at least, is not about the essentials. You'll hear very few things that are salvation issues, strictly. You'll mostly hear things about how we can add things because I know who's here. I know who's coming. And most of the people who are coming don't need to hear the essentials, at least not all the time. They need to hear, you got the essentials, let's move on. Let's grow up. Let's mature. That's who's here. That's who I preach to. And so some of these things, well, I, you know, as long as I got salvation, it doesn't matter. That's going to be a bad response. Let me give you two quick stories here. Numbers chapter 25. This is the opposite of apathy. This is a guy with great passion. Already they've decided you can't intermarry with people of foreign nations. Balaam has somehow, though he didn't curse them with his curses, he was able to give advice to the other nations about how to trip people up. The Israelites up, intermarry. Bring your bo- the most beautiful women you got. Get your most beautiful woman. Get your Jenna. Get your Ayla. Get your Maddies. Get them together and march them out in front of the Israelites. And I guarantee you to get their attention. And they'll grab onto one of them women and they'll marry them and suddenly they'll lose their faith. And that's exactly what happened. And Moses is standing in front of them. God's already sent a plague through. But this is what happens. The Lord said to Moses, Phineas is the one who saw this happen, and he took that spear and he drove it through those two people in the tent. He just absolutely lost his ever-living mind when he saw what these two people just been told, you don't do that, and then right in front of everybody, they do that. What do you do about this? Phineas picks up a spear goes into their tent, drives it into the ground, and comes out and says, enough of that. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. So I'm making an everlasting covenant with him. He's going to be my priest. What I was going to do, Phinehas did. Zeal is when you want to do what God wants you to do, even if nobody else will do it. That zeal. Jesus does this too when he drives the money changers in John chapter 2. Almost time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, others sitting at tables exchanging money. He made a whip out of cords. We all talk about the whip here. And drove out all from the temple courts, sheep, cattle, scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he says, get, out, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered what is written. Zeal for your house will consume me. He was so enthusiastic for what should take 
place in the temple that he could not help but attack what was taking place in the temple when something doesn't belong here. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 5? A man was sleeping with his father's wife. And the church sat back and went, that's cool. And Paul said, that ain't cool. You can't sit there and watch that and have a zeal for God's house and not do something about this. Where is our passion? What happens to our passion? Where does it go? Why? And here's what Psalm says. Here's what one of the Psalms that connected this. My zeal wears me out for my enemies ignore your words. My zeal is I am so zealous for God's words that when enemies forget it, I remind them what they are. I, I can't help but just do what God says. I can't help. I, I've got to do it. This is my enthusiasm. I don't just know the truth. I feel it keenly. When you believe so strongly in the truth of God and you see a fellow believer go against it, what do you do? Phineas couldn't stay still. It gets better than that. When you know what God's will is and you see in yourself you're not doing it, what does your zeal do? It should not rest until it is removed. That is zeal. So, in the weeks to come, as we talk about apathy some more, here's the goal toward which we are moving. One is we need to know the truth of the gospel. You cannot be excited about and sparked to zeal from something you don't even know. You don't even know you should care. If you do know it, you want to know it as well as you can. This is the knowledge part. This is the knowledge of our equation. The knowledge part is, do I know what the gospel is? Do I? Those of you who are baptized, I, I have a hard time understanding why you wouldn't be diving in more of what this gospel means and try to understand it ever a bit more, right? But the second step is this, is when you, when you feel deeply the significance of what you know, what does it do for you? What exactly has God done that benefited you? And you care deeply because it has a bearing on you. You don't just trust it enough that it, you follow it and be saved. You trust it enough to follow it and live with joy and vibrancy, right? Now that you've tasted the Lord is good, you just want to keep eating. You want to keep devouring and start showing it more. And that leads to the third thing. You do what you know. Knowledge plus zeal equals a vibrant Christian life. And still we on. I understand because I'm there too. I've been around it so long that the occupational hazard is a Nadab and a Bayou. I'm sitting there I can take God's fire and I can light the altar and begin the entire sacrificial system or I can drink a little bit, go get the wrong fire and die. My prayer for us as a church is that we at least come to the grips with the fact that we can get awful apathetic about something that should absolutely enliven our lives. We should be so full of zeal and enthusiasm and yet so often... We're having to force ourselves to do even the most menial little bit of it every day. 
can we learn to know more of it and care about it and actually do it so that our lives become that vibrant Christian life? That's the hope over the coming weeks as we talk about this apathy stuff. I ask that you just simply examine your life some more. I've asked you that since last Sunday. Examine it some more. Where is the apathy in your life? We're going to start talking about what might be the cause of it and how you can address it in weeks to come. This evening, if there's any need for you, maybe, maybe there's a need you say, I want to give my life over to God because of other things that are going on in your life. You've come to a realization you need the salvation that only He offers, the forgiveness that only He can grant you. T tonight, that's available to you as we stand and as we sing.